Well, ushers are coming. I'll say good morning as well. How are you? Good. It's good to see you guys. You made it. The uh, spring forward didn't get you. Well done. You made it here. So we are in a series talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that. But if you're just joining us for the first time today, we'll kind of fill you in on where we've been. We've been talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, who He is, what He does, so that we might grow in our understanding of who God is and how He operates. And so today, we, I think that song we just sang, His Mercy is More, is a fitting song for us to sing in preparation for the work of the Holy Spirit we're going to talk about today, because today we are examining the purifying work of the Holy Spirit, or what the Scriptures also call the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of one of the big words for it, which simply means that the Spirit is at work making us increasingly pure or increasingly holy, more like Christ each day. And so when I think about that work, when I think about the purifying work of the Holy Spirit, uh, believe it or not, I actually think about my mechanic, taking the car to my mechanic. So I am not a big car guy. Some of y'all car guys, car gals, you know your cars backwards and forwards. I do not know my car incredibly well and increasingly less so as cars get to become more like computers on wheels, right? And so when I take my car to the mechanic and he hooks it up to the diagnostic machine, I'm like, oh, it's clunking or it's making this noise or it's doing this thing. And he, he will come back and begin to tell me the things that he's discovering that are wrong using terminology that I do not understand. Uh, and so, but because I'm a dude, what do I do? Do I say, I have no idea what you're talking about? Of course not. I nod my head in agreement and I say, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, makes sense. That's probably what you should do. It totally makes sense to me. Got it. Yeah, if that was me, I'd do that too, right? And he could be talking, he could use Dr. Seussian terms. I mean, who's them a what's-its and thingamajigs, and I would think they were real parts of my car, right? And so but here's the deal. It doesn't matter so much that I don't know exactly what he's talking about doing. One, because my mechanic goes to church here, so he's an honest guy. That's right. He's probably in here somewhere, right? So I, I trust him, right? I'm like, yeah, he's not going to gouge me here. He's like going to tell me what needs to be done. He's going he's gonna to do it, right? And the reason it doesn't matter whether I know or not what he's talking about, you know, the bottom line is it doesn't matter, is because ultimately he's going to do the work and he's not going to ask me to roll up my sleeves, pick up a wrench and turn that thing with him to fix the car. He's going to be the one fixing it, right? But I think when we talk about the purifying work of the Holy Spirit, here's the parallel, is that I'm guessing I don't have to make a lot of arguments to you to convince you that this is something the Holy Spirit does, that he purifies us. I mean, his name is the Holy Spirit. In other words, the assumption is that he would be part of his work would be to make us holy, to make us like Christ. So most people, I think, most followers of Jesus, my impression over the years has been, is that most of us would believe that, we would agree with that, but that we have very little concept of how he does it that we're not really sure, in the same way that I'm not sure what my mechanic is really doing when he gets under the hood to fix the car, my guess is that a lot of us are really not sure how the Holy Spirit does his purifying work. And the, the danger of that or the challenge of that is this, that while my mechanic doesn't ask me to roll up my sleeves and turn a wrench to help him fix my car, the Holy Spirit does invite us to join him, to collaborate with him, to partner with him in his purifying work of us. And if I don't know how he does it, I'm gonna have a hard time partnering with him in that work. Do you follow me? Yeah? So here's the deal. There are a number of things that we've talked about as we've talked about the work of the Holy Spirit and they are not works that we actually have anything to do with. He just does them. 
So when we talked about the fact when the Spirit saves us, we say that He brings about regeneration. This is a work the Spirit does. And regeneration just means He takes a dead soul and He makes it alive. Can I do that? Do I have anything to do with that, with that action? I don't. The Spirit of God is strong to be able to raise a dead soul into life in Christ Jesus. That's what He does. My active ingredient is faith. I believe but there's nothing that I do that is able to make that transpire. When we talk about the justifying work of the Holy Spirit, which means, <coughs> pardon me, that he makes us legally righteous before God as if we were in a courtroom and God rightly can say, you are right before me. You are righteous before me because of what Christ has done on the cross. And that work is imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. That justifying work is the Holy Spirit's. I don't really partner with him to see it come to pass. Or when we talk about the fact that the Spirit glorifies all those who are in Christ or he will glorify all those who are in Christ. What that means is that someday we're gonna receive a glorified, resurrected body one day. Do I have anything to do with that? No, the Spirit is the one who does that work. Quite often, the work of the Spirit that we've talked about has been work that the Spirit does. We're aware of it, we acknowledge it, but we can't make it transpire, we can't make it happen. It's His power that does it. But the Scriptures, when they talk about the sanctifying work or the purifying work of the Holy Spirit, talks about that work a little differently. Because he will talk about the fact that it is in fact the Spirit who by his power purifies all those who are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, the Scriptures command us to participate with him in that work. In other words, that we, we have a job to do when it comes to becoming increasingly pure. That we have effort to give, real effort, right? Not just a, well, I'll let go and let God and he'll take care of it but rather that we're called to actively participate with the Spirit in the work of becoming increasingly like Jesus. And so this is a, a little bit of a different aspect of the Spirit's work that we talk about today as we understand that we are called to roll up our sleeves and participate with the Spirit in this work. So that's what we're gonna examine today, the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. And Here's the errors I want to help us avoid, all right? So here's the danger throughout the generations of followers of Jesus. Typically, people have fallen into one, or two, one of two errors when they think about the Holy Spirit's purifying work. One is the assumption that everything that's required to become pure is something I must do, that it depends upon me and my strength to become pure. And let me just tell you, the end result of that mentality is one of two things. It's either legalistic self-righteousness that believes I've really done a good job of becoming pure, or it's feeling completely crushed and defeated because I didn't do a good job of becoming pure. And so one error on one end of one polar end of the spectrum, right, is the idea that it all depends upon me. But the opposite end of the spectrum is the belief that I have no active part to play in God's purifying work. And so what happens if I believe that? I sit on my hands and I do nothing, essentially. And then I don't become increasingly pure because I'm not participating with God in the ways that he's called me to partner with him in his purifying work. And so can we work, church, today to kind of find a middle ground between those two errors? To try and walk in between those two errors where we don't say it all depends on me to become like Jesus and where we don't say I have no part in this or nothing active to do. I'll just sit back and, and wait but that there's a middle ground to be found between those two. That's what I want us to work towards finding today. So if I'm right in my assumption, and I may or may not be, but if I'm right, that kind of like when we take our car to the mechanic, if you're not a car person like me, that you perhaps aren't sure 
what they're doing, that we're not sure what the Holy Spirit is doing when we say he purifies us. I simply want to see if we can't do a bit of a deep dive today to talk about how the Holy Spirit actually purifies us. That's the question we're going to attempt to answer today. How does the Holy Spirit purify us? We'll find that there are three answers to that question. And those are the three things we're going to look at today. Number one, the Holy Spirit purifies us by convicting us of our sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit purifies us by changing our desires. And number three, the Holy Spirit purifies us not just by convicting us of our sin, not just by purifying us, uh, not by, just by changing our desires, excuse me, but also the Holy Spirit purifies us by empowering us, literally giving us power to obey God. And those are the three things you'll see as you read through the Scriptures and you see essentially every letter of the New Testament and pretty much most of the Old Testament there is an assumption, an underlying assumption that God's people are supposed to become more like God each day. And so the, whatever the issue is that Paul or Peter or John is writing to somebody about in the New Testament, they're essentially making an argument, you should be changing in your ways. Now let's talk about how that transpires. And you'll see as, as the scriptures talk about the purifying work of the Spirit, they will talk over and over again. You'll find almost everything fits into one of these three categories. How the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, how he changes our desires so that we don't desire what we used to desire and how he then not only does those two things, but also then empowers us to obey God in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. So we're gonna look at those three things together today. So let's start with the first one. The Holy Spirit convicts us. So look with me at John chapter 16, verse eight. We're gonna have it on the screen. If you wanna just find one spot in your Bible where we're gonna camp out most of our day, it's gonna be Romans chapter eight. So Romans chapter eight, you can camp out there if you want. But I want you to see this in John chapter 16. This is Jesus talking and he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit who he's going to send after he is crucified and resurrected and then ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father until he returns. He says, I'm gonna send my spirit into the world and he's describing the work of the spirit, what he's gonna do, what he's gonna be like, what his nature and character will be like. And so just one verse that I want us to see today in John chapter 16, verse eight, he says this. He says, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now he goes on after that phrase to talk about what that conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment looks like. He explains it further. But for our purposes today, I simply want you to see this. The very first work that the Holy Spirit does in any person's life is to first convict them of sin. That's the first thing we see there. Now here Jesus is talking about when the Holy Spirit comes, he says he will convict the world. In other words, he's not talking about people who already believe. He's talking about people who do not yet believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that through him and through him alone we can have life. And he says, for a person in that position, what the Holy Spirit will do is he will come and do a work of conviction. He will come and cause that person to see that they are a sinner and they're in need of someone to make payment for that sin. That they have a problem before God that can't be overcome. Now let me say two things there. One, if you're a Christian, that has happened in your life. At some point, you were convicted that you were in sin and needed a savior. If you're not a Christian here today, let me just say that might sound really foreign to you. That idea that anybody would actually acknowledge or feel like a weight to say, I am deeply 
steeped in, lost in, saturated in this thing called sin. I'm in rebellion against God and I have felt the weight of conviction that that's the case and I have to get out from underneath that somehow and the only way the scriptures tell us to get out from underneath it is Jesus. And so the good news is when the Holy Spirit does that convicting work, he also points to the solution to that work. So before we go any further, let me say today, friends, if you are not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the first work the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life is he wants to convict you of your sin. He wants to convict you that you have a problem called sin that you cannot overcome on your own. And he would invite you to see that Jesus has taken care of it for you if you would come and believe in him. Before the Spirit would do any other thing in your life, we believe that what the Scriptures are telling us is that's the first work. That's the first thing He'd love to do. But now for those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, who, who have felt that conviction regarding sin and that our, our righteousness was not a sufficient righteousness and that judgment was coming for us and that we needed someone to take care of it for us. For those of us who have come to that understanding then, we can also understand the Spirit doesn't just convict one time that we, so that we would come to Christ, but rather he continues in this convicting work because it's part of his nature. It's part of who he is. So he continues to convict us of sin so that we might continue to become increasingly like Christ, increasingly pure. Do you follow me? Everybody with me? Okay, so that's what we're looking at John chapter 16 to understand is that the Spirit does in the life of a believer the first thing or uh, one of the things he does to bring about purity in us is he convicts us of sin. Now, let me define conviction because that's something that might help us, right? When I say the Spirit convicts us of sin, I really mean two things. And let's be really, really plain about this. Let's not be like overly, pot, you know, like theoretical here. Let's just get really concrete. When we say the Spirit who lives within us as a believer convicts us, we mean two things. That he shows us our sin. He reveals it to us. Shows us if something we've done is sin, he reveals it. He, he shows it to us. And then the second thing he does is he causes us to feel sorrow about that thing. Those are really the two elements of conviction. That's not complex, right? That's pretty simple. All right, so we can expect that. If the Spirit does convicting work in order to purify us, what that means is he's going to reveal sin to us that is in our life. He's gonna show it to us. Right? I had a friend who, uh, this is a little different than showing it to us individually, but I had a friend who said, my mom, growing up, always prayed that the Holy Spirit would reveal my sin, not just to me, but to them, so that I would always be found out. And I was like, that's a great prayer. Now, as a parent, I like this prayer. I'm, I'm, I am in on that prayer, right? The Spirit just has this way of revealing our sin to us and sometimes to others, unfortunately, right? Now, I know that when we hear that, our first impulse is to hide from that convicting work. It's to resist it. It's to run from it. Because who likes to, be, to, have, to acknowledge that they're wrong? Anybody, you're, you like that? There's a reason no hands went up, all right? Yeah, we don't, we don't like to be convicted. But friends, can I just make an argument here and tell you this? You want the Spirit to do this work. You want the Spirit to do his convicting work. And you don't want to resist it. And here's the reason why. Because the Spirit convicts us, shows us our sin, so that we won't walk further and further into it and bear the consequences of walking further and further into it. How many of you know that sin has consequences? 
Sin leaves scars. It hurts us. It harms us. We weren't designed to live that way. And because we weren't, when we walk in sin, it has drastic, dire consequences in our lives. And the mercy, one of the mercies that we sang about, his mercy is more. One of the mercies of the Spirit is that he reveals, us our, reveals our sin to us so that we wouldn't keep going down that road. What a great mercy that is. And as much as it's hard to see it and hear it, do you know what's harder? The consequences that you will bear for not listening. So the Spirit is merciful to show us our sin. We have to be listening, but he shows us our sin. The second part of that convicting work, he doesn't just show us that sin. He actually causes us to feel sorrowful about it. So he weighs upon us. When we say the Spirit convicts us, what we mean is the Spirit causes us to feel the weightiness of our sin so that we don't want to continue in it any longer. He brings a sorrow to us over that sin. And that's really important. Because let me say one really important thing. As the Spirit reveals, one of the things you need to recognize is if you will listen, then you will grow increasingly sensitive, tender to the Spirit, which means you'll be much more quick to identify sin in your life and much more quick to shed that sin or to fight it or to run away from it. But do you know what happens if you ignore the Spirit? You develop what we in the Christian world for years have called a seared conscience, which is to say your heart grows hard to the conviction of the Spirit if you ignore the conviction of the Spirit. It is so imperative. Church family, please hear me. And particularly those of you who are young, please hear me. Develop a pattern of yielding to the conviction of the Spirit and acknowledging it now. Because if you put it off and ignore it, you will grow. It will grow increasingly difficult to respond to that conviction with each passing year. And the consequences grow more dire and they grow greater. And God's Spirit is trying to protect you by revealing your sin to you and by causing you to feel the weight of it, to feel sorrow for it. Now I want to say something about the sorrow piece of that. I've already said don't, don't let your conscience grow seared. Paul says something really great in the book of Acts when he's, he's, he's writing and he says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have not lied to anyone. And, what he, and I love that because what he's showing is what the Holy Spirit does is bears witness to or acts upon the conscience. And the conscience feels the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the question becomes, how do we deal with it, right? And the great news there, by the way, too, is that we recognize that we can trust the Spirit to show us what is sin and what isn't sin because the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to Paul's conscience, not that he's in sin, but that he's what? Not in sin, which is awesome because what that means is we're not gonna spend, if we trust the Holy Spirit is the one who's, who convicts, then we don't spend our whole lives running around going, did I sin there, 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 as if we have to constantly be watching for it ourselves because the Spirit's not gonna show it to us. If the Spirit is going to show us our sin in order to convict us of it, and we're tender to the Spirit, can we trust that we don't have to constantly be guessing if we're in sin? I know Christians who spend their whole life, and, and I love the impulse of this because it's, it, the attempt is I want to be pure and I want to walk with God and I don't want to be in sin. But that vigilance, which is good, turns into uh, almost a neurotic approach to 
I can't trust the Spirit to reveal my sin. Therefore, I've got to spend every waking moment doubting that, I'm, that I might be in sin and wondering it's possible and freaking out about every action I take. That, that is a really tough way to live. But if we trust the Spirit is the one who does the convicting work, church, can we trust that he'll show us when we're in sin? I mean, if, we're, if we will yield, if we will listen and not sear our conscience, he will show us. It's just that prayer of invitation. Search me. Know me. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And, and God, I want to respond humbly to that. The other thing I want to talk about when I think about that, that sorrow that the Spirit brings when he convicts, because he doesn't just show, he brings sorrow, is, uh, you know, there's a worldly philosophy around shame and sorrow. And the shame is kind of a buzzword right now. And that worldly philosophy is essentially this. You and I should never experience shame. And the reason we should never experience shame is because sin, the idea of sin or anything immoral, is really just a social construct. Do you know what I mean when I say a social construct? It's just something our parents handed down to us. It's something our environment gave to us. It's not, there's no such thing really as sin. And therefore, there's really no such thing as shame. In fact, you shouldn't feel shame. You just have to learn to become self-actualized and get comfortable with who you are and what you do. And if you can get comfortable with that, then you'll learn that shame is not a real thing and you won't really feel it. And you'll be able to put off. And boy, won't that be a nice life when we no longer feel shame. And the world's conviction about that is the reason we shouldn't feel shame is because they believe that it's essentially just sort of a puritanical morality that's been handed down to us across generations and we just gotta become enlightened enough to get rid of that. Right? Now here's, and that, I, I, that does, that's not shocking coming from a worldly perspective. It does not surprise me or shock me in the least. It's normal, okay? But here's what is disappointing, I find, is brothers and sisters in the church, I find talking about shame in much the same way that the world talks about it. As if shame is always something we should, that we should, shame is something we should never experience. Now in the church, it's always couched as because God loves us, we shouldn't feel shame. But there is so much nuance lacking from that understanding of shame. And to me, it smells and sounds way too much like the world's version, the world's approach to shame. Because one of the things that we recognize, if the Spirit wants to make us sorrowful for our sin, then perhaps shame is a tool that God might use. And if we dismiss shame as always being inappropriate, then we will never receive the convicting work of the Spirit that He wants to do perhaps through shame. So let me do a little more nuanced teaching here, just a very brief, like little kind of connector here. I wanna help you with this because I think it's deeply important. The scriptures absolutely talk about shame as a tool that God uses. There's just the distinction between appropriate shame and misplaced shame. Those are the terms I would use. Appropriate shame and misplaced shame. Appropriate shame is shame we feel over sins we commit because sin is shameful we should feel ashamed of it, yes? Sin is shameful. It's rebellion against God and it's worthy of producing shame and sorrow in us and that shame and sorrow is meant to lead us to repentance. And so it's a necessary tool in the tool belt of God, in the tool belt of the Spirit through which he's trying to help us grow in righteousness and in purity. And if we dismiss shame, that's a dangerous thing. But here's what misplaced shame is. Misplaced shame is one of two things. Misplaced shame is shame over something which is not really sin. It's when the devil is whispering in our ear, how dare you do this or how dare you do that? And the thing he's trying to bring shame about is not actually sin. And if it's not sin, then it's not shameful, right? The second type of misplaced shame is 
and this is, this is the real tricky nuance because this is what the enemy wants to do more than anything, okay? It's not just, I think we can usually do a decent job of going, no, that's not sinful, you know? And if we have a community of believers living around us who help us understand and see when we're in error, then we have a, some safeguards, right? But the real dangerous one, the really tricky one, is the misplaced shame, which is appropriate shame, but used to convince us that we will be condemned before God even though we are in Christ Jesus. Because we might feel shame appropriately for sin, but when we become convinced that this appropriate shame felt over sin has now separated us from God, that we are unloved, no longer his child, that we are condemned in sin and no longer reconciled to the Father, and we begin to live out of that conviction, that's when our appropriate shame has become misplaced shame. Now, my hope is that when my brothers and sisters that I hear teaching about this pretty often now are teaching about that what they're really wanting to talk about is misplaced shame that we shouldn't experience and shouldn't feel and that we should reject that. I hope, I'll give the benefit of the doubt and say, I think that's what they're talking about, but there's such a lack of nuance to it that it sounds like essentially shame and sorrow over sin itself is somehow inappropriate. And it's not because it is a tool of God to lead us to purity. Church, are you with me? Okay, so that's a little distinction I wanna make sure you've got kind of in your minds. Now, so what's our right response? I mean, how do we, if, if the first work that the Spirit does to purify us is to convict us, and that has those two parts of showing us our sin and causing us to feel sorrow over that sin, then what's our, what's our right response? And here, the answer is that we have to learn to yield to God, to yield to His Spirit, to respond when that conviction comes and to respond appropriately and to respond quickly. Can I say that, church? to respond quickly, not to drag our feet. Because look, the conviction is coming. It's for your good. And you need to convince yourself of that now, today, sitting here. Whatever conviction I experience. Look, let's be honest. We're talking about the convicting work of the Spirit. It's very possible that right now, today, sitting here in this room, is the Spirit present with us today? Yeah, He is. And if this is part of His work, might He convict you of something today that you need to go and make right? (laughs) Less yeses on that. Yeah, it's very possible that he might, right? It's very possible that he may do that today. And as you receive that, as you listen to it, my encouragement to you is don't, don't push against it, yield to it. That's our participation with the Spirit in his convicting work. When I think about this, I think about, we take our kids bowling, our kids are young, right? So we always use the bumper lanes, yeah? And they're a lot of fun. And so what happens when you put it the bumper lanes, the scores go up, right? They do pretty well. And they throw it. And, you know, I mean, my kids do the whole, like the underhand and it's tossed five feet in the air. And you're like, we're going to have to buy a new bowling lane for the bowling alley. Because it's just smack, right? And it just cracks and then it rolls. And sometimes it like makes it halfway down the lane. And then dad's out there cheating, pushing it down. And... But here's what happens. Here's what you notice if you watch. With the bumpers, one of two things always happens. When my kids roll the ball, and maybe sometimes me, it hits the bumper and it comes back towards the middle of the lane. Like it hits it at the right angle, right? It moves back towards the middle of the lane. The bumper has done its job and moved the ball away from the gutter and back towards the pins, which is the aim of the game. But every once in a while, a ball hits that bumper at like a weird angle and then it just rides the bumper all the way down. Yeah? Y'all have done, this has happened to you before. I know it has. It hits that bumper and it doesn't bounce off. It just goes right along that bumper all the way down to, and you get one pin or no pins. And every time I see that, I think to myself, that ball really likes its sin. That's a sinful bowling ball, (laughs) right? 
And the reason is because it won't yield to the bumper. The bumper's trying to get it to go back to the middle of the lane. But that ball really likes the gutter. And some of us, in our relationship with the Spirit, need to have a little bit more of a lane bumper kind of life. Because we're riding that bumper all the way down. We're thinking to ourselves, I just really want to get into that gutter. And instead of yielding to the Spirit and letting it bounce us back to the middle of the lane to walk in the purposes of God. Yeah? Don't ride the rail all the way down the lane as if you're just dying to jump over the rail and get in the gutter, okay? The Spirit is good. He may keep you out of the gutter, but he wants you to hit a lot of pins, not one pin. All right, so let's talk about the second then, the second work that the Spirit does to purify us. I said the first is that he convicts us. The second is that he, he purifies us by changing our desires. And this is so good. I love this. Because if we just said the first thing, that the Spirit convicts us, then we would expect perhaps that we would spend our whole life responding to the Spirit, convicting us and making us feel sorrowful, right? Showing us our sin and making us feel sorrowful. But the thing that we learn as we get a little further in our examination of how does the Spirit actually make us pure? The second thing we learn is that He changes our desires so that over time we actually desire the things of God rather than the things of the world. And that we can count on the Spirit to do that so that all of life in Christ is not an uphill slog to try and figure out how to deal with all this conviction that we're feeling and our desires never change. So we always want bad stuff. That's our primary drive. And then we're just gonna get convicted and convicted and convicted and convicted. And we're gonna have to repent and repent and repent and repent. And that's just, that's just what it is. It's just one constant miserable trek of having sin shown again and again and again and again. Now look, none of us is gonna be perfect until Christ comes and we behold him. And in beholding him, First John tells us, we will be transformed into his likeness. Somebody say amen to that. That's gonna happen. It's a guarantee. It will take place. Until then, we won't be perfect. But what we will be is increasing, increasingly desiring the things of God if the Spirit of God lives in us. That we will be increasingly desiring the things of God if the Spirit lives in us. doesn't mean there's not moments of kind of, you know, backtracking. There's not moments where we flatten out. But the trajectory of the life of a person with the Spirit of God in them is one that moves towards Christ-likeness over the long haul. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2 says. Here's how Paul talks about it. When he says in Philippians chapter two, he says, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so pause, pause right there. When he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's talking about our active role, right? Working out our salvation means taking the truth of the gospel and applying it to every area of my life. If Christ has died for me and redeemed me and purchased me, then what does that mean for how I should live in my marriage? What does that mean for how I should live in my speech? What does that mean for how I should live in my mental thought life? Applying that, that's what he means. He says, work out your salvation, this, tr- this salvation that you have. Work it out now with fear and trembling. There's our part, right? There's our partnership. But look what he says next. In verse 13, So verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Okay, pause there. Now what has he just told us? Who takes up residence in us when we're in Christ? The Spirit does. 
right? And because the Spirit, when he says God is at work in you, who's, who's he talking about? He's talking about the Spirit. And he's saying the Spirit is in you. That's God in you, at work in you. So work out your salvation. There's our part with fear and trembling because it is the Spirit of God who works in you. There's his part. Isn't that a beautiful partnership that he's showing us there? There he is. Now, what does the Spirit do? It is the Spirit who is at work in you to do, to do what, we should ask. And look at how he finishes the verse. He says, God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For it is God who works in you to will and to work. What's he said when he says the Spirit is at work in you to will something? In other words, if you will something, you what? You desire it. If you will something, you desire it. So the Spirit is bringing new desires into us. That's what he's just said. The Spirit is at work in you to will and to work according to God's good pleasure. In other words, he's replacing the old desires that you had for the things of the world, for things that were sinful, for things that didn't please God, and he's replacing those with new ones. He's replacing them with desires that, that honor God and that, that cause you to want the things that he wants. I hope if you've walked with Jesus for a little while, that you've experienced this, right? Where perhaps when you first started, you thought to yourself, man, some of these like disciplines, like getting up in the morning and reading the scriptures and praying, they feel kind of hard, you know, to get going. But then a few years later, you find yourself going, where did the hour go? I mean, it, it wasn't enough time. It wasn't enough time to linger in prayer and to wait on the Lord. It just, it flew by what happened, that's, how, that's a part of an, or a demonstration of how God begins to work through the things of the Spirit. Look, when I was 17 years old, I had absolutely zero discernment about what movies I watched. I'm talking about none. I'm ashamed of the movies I watched when I was 17 years old. Now, I wish I had never seen some of the things that I saw on a screen because I, I absolutely just did not have the discernment I would never watch now and have no desire to watch now the things that I thought I couldn't live without seeing that movie when I was 17. I said, I've got to see it. I have to. Everybody's seeing it. Like, I really want to see it. Whatever that movie's about is interesting to me. And now at 42, I just, like, I could see that and change the commercial as fast as can be because I'm like, I have zero interest in that. I mean, just none. It's gone. Why is it gone? Why is that interest gone? Because God works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And hopefully, hopefully, I and you are working out our salvation with fear and with trembling so that our desires change over time. It's one of my favorite truths about how powerful the Spirit of God is that he can change our desires. Do you know anyone else that can do that? Do you know anything else that can do that? And what a good promise it is that he will do it. Friends, if you will participate with the Spirit, he will change your desires. See, when we're young, when we're young, friends, we think that, the, that God is always going to have us do things that we're gonna hate doing. Be honest, right? I'm gonna have to, you know, marry the person that I don't really love that much or I don't think she's pretty or I'm gonna have to do this job or go to this part of the world but what we fail to understand is that what God does when he wants us to do things is he changes our desires over time so that we love the things that he calls us to. We, we, we don't have a category for that. Can I give you that category? Walk with the Spirit and watch your desires change. 
The things that you think now you could never desire, the things of God that you think you could never desire, you will begin to desire if you will walk with him and yield to him. So how do we, how do, what's our part then, right? We said we gotta yield, we gotta live a lane bumper life with the conviction piece. Well, how, what's our part then in terms of gaining new desires? And I think we can sum it up by saying this, you have to learn to eat a new diet. You have to begin to eat a new spiritual diet. In the same way that if you wanna be physically healthy, you have to eat a new physical diet, yes? Fruits, veggies, the whole, the whole mix, right? You gotta learn to do that. And over time, like you may start and your taste is for fast food and salt and preservatives. And like as you begin, you, you think, I still crave those things. But over time, what does your body begin to love? Healthy food. Same thing is true spiritually. It's a good visual illustration of how the spiritual life works. We will begin to crave, we, you might right now spiritually, so to speak, be craving you know, the fat and the salt and the preservatives. But over time, as you begin to eat a new diet, then what happens is you begin to crave the things, you begin to have new spiritual taste buds, if you will. You cultivate a taste for things that you once didn't have a taste for. And so if I can give you a couple of pieces of that, you need to change your social media behaviors probably, your patterns, maybe even get off of social media, right? That probably needs to change. You need to change your online viewing habits. You need to change what you put on the screen in front of you. You need, to, you need a different diet than what you're constantly, probably currently watching or possibly, I should say. Don't let me presume in any one anyone individual's life here. But you, you need a healthy diet in terms of your consumption. And let me include in that too, the news that you watch. Because I'm not just talking about things that produce lust or desires of the world. How about things that produce anxiety and fear in unending measure? How about turning off whatever that news source is that is producing so much anxiety and fear in you that you've ceased to believe or understand or really operate out of the conviction that we worship a sovereign king who controls the events of the world. He's in charge and he's bringing his kingdom into the world. He will be victorious and we have nothing to fear. There's any command I can speak to you from Scripture with absolute conviction, it's this one. Fear not. And are you partaking of a diet that produces anxiety constantly in you about the way the world is going or our country is going? I'm not saying there aren't things that, that are really problematic. There are. But a believer should not be marked by fear and anxiety. And if that's the case, then you need a new diet. You with me? All right. I was until you told me to change my news source. Then it was out. All right, last one. The Spirit purifies us by giving us power to obey. Look at Romans 8. This is where I said we'd kind of land today. Look at Romans 8, verses 13 through 17. This whole chapter is so rich in terms of life in the Spirit. What does it look like to to live life deeply connected to the Spirit of God? But in verse 13 through 17, it says this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see the partnership there again? If you live by the flesh, you will die. But if you live, but if, uh, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who has to put to death the deeds of the body? I do, right? It says, if you put to death, how do I do it? If you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Do you see the partnership? He's saying, do it 
You do it. You have a real role to play. Now do it by the power of the Holy Spirit because that's your only hope. You're never gonna do it on your own. And then he says after, after that, he says, you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here's a couple things that are taking place in this text. The first thing we see is that he's saying, if you put to death the deeds of the body, all right? So this is about being purified. It's about the purifying work of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that's the thematic verse or phrase in these sets of verses telling us what they're about. So he's saying, I'm gonna teach you something, church, about how to become pure, about how to participate with the Spirit in my purifying work. And then the very next thing he says, the first way that the Spirit empowers us to obey, the first way is by leading us moment by moment. And we've touched on this in previous weeks, so I'm not gonna say a lot here, but look at what the text says. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what he's saying is, what Paul is saying, he's, he's making a parallel between putting to death the deeds of the body and being led by the Spirit. And he's saying those two things are parallel ideas. All who are led by the Spirit are those who are putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Therefore, what we can understand is he's saying one of the ways that the Spirit is going to help you put to death the deeds of the body, verse 13, is by leading you in, his, in the Spirit, by leading you forward moment by moment Verse 14, do you see the connection between those two things? Church, yes? Okay, great. So we see the connection between them. He's saying the Spirit is going to lead you. Now just think about what that means for a moment. What he's saying is the Spirit will each day dwell with you and when you face choices and decisions, he will guide you. He will show you what is sinful and what is not. And he'll, he'll lead you forward so that you don't have to fear or worry that you'll have no guidance or direction. I mean, there are so many nuanced decisions we make in any given day. So many nuanced decisions. It, down to the tone of voice we use when responding to somebody who asks us a question, right? I can take a sinful tone or I can take a, a good tone, a kind tone, a patient tone. All the way down to that level of detail. And the question is, are we looking for the leading of the Spirit? I mean, think about this. How often do you and I go through a day and far from receiving moment by moment leadership from the Spirit because we're not looking for it, getting our radar up and expecting it, we go an hour, two hours, four hours, eight hours, and at the end of the day we go, I'm not sure I ever received any leading from the Spirit at all through the day in one moment, right? I've, I've had days like that. But that's because, is it, is it because the Spirit's not wanting to lead me that day? Is it, is it because the Spirit didn't say anything to me that day? No. My assumption is it's because I wasn't listening. I didn't expect to receive leading from the Spirit. I didn't ask Him for it. I didn't face a decision and go, Spirit, just in a quick prayer, would you show me what to do? And then move forward by faith. Move forward by faith. 
not sit on my hands and wait all day, right? So friends, expect the leading of the Spirit. I mean, the Scriptures tell us again and again, this is what He does. And part of His power to purify you is by leading you. So listen for it. The second thing that we find that gives us power to be able to access you know, the Spirit's power to walk in purity, to become pure. The second thing we see is that he gives us a new identity. We talk about this a lot around here at church, but the next thing that he said, if you look at verse 15 and 16, after saying the Spirit of God leads, he said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, so stop there. That's verse 15 and 16. So what, is he, what he's just said is, not only does the Spirit lead you, and that's how he imparts power to you, the Spirit also gives you a new identity as a son or daughter of the King. Now what Paul is getting is something way bigger than we can possibly even fathom, but let me try and do my best here, because what he's essentially saying is, when he says you're a son or daughter of God through the Spirit, that the Spirit has adopted you and he bears witness to you, in fact, he's continually communicating to you, you are God's loved child, what he's saying is he's given you a whole nother well to draw from in order to make righteous, pure decisions and righteous, pure actions because you're no longer drawing from a polluted well. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you out of that domain where you had no light, no ability to make good decisions, no ability to see what was true, what your purpose was in life. You existed in darkness and now he's taken you out of that kingdom, out of that domain, and he's transferred you into a domain and a kingdom of light where you are now a subject of mercy, you're a recipient of grace, you are loved as God's child. And let me just tell you, people who know they're loved by God make great decisions. People who don't know they're loved by God make bad decisions. And he said, I have opened up a whole new realm of possibility for you in terms of walking in purity because I've taken you out of this place and I've put you in this one. And now you can see before you couldn't. Now you have strong legs before you were crippled. I have changed everything about your circumstance, everything about your situation. Now, knowing that, you have power through the Spirit to walk in purity. That's how the Spirit purifies us. He gives us power by transferring us to a whole nother place, a whole nother identity, a whole nother realm of existence. That's really the way the scriptures are trying to paint this reality for you and I. Paul is doing his darndest to try and help us understand, I don't think you can comprehend the radical difference between where you were and where you are when you have come into Christ. He's changed everything. You with me, church? That's what he's trying to communicate. You have a power you don't, you don't understand the Spirit is moving through you to bring that power. Then the last thing he does is he says this, uh, verse 17. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, the last thing that the Spirit does to give us power to walk in obedience, to be pure, the last thing he does is he doesn't just lead us and he doesn't just transfer us out of one domain and put us in another, right? The last thing it says he does is he points us to our future reality. 
He says, this is where you're headed. It's assured. It is yours. You're on your way there. Now live in the reality of that place. Live in the reality of the, the completion of the purifying work that Jesus has come to do in you. Just live that reality out. He's saying you have a glorious inheritance and that glorious inheritance is perfect righteousness, perfect purity. That is your inheritance. You will receive it. Now, if you know that, this is the illustration I always use. It's, it's helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you, right? Go back to, to our marriage illustration about this reality. If I knew and was guaranteed that I was gonna marry the person of my dreams, would I waste my time now with a bunch of bums? No, I would wait patiently and go, the person of my dreams is coming. Why would I, why would I piddle around with a bunch of losers, waste my time, make a bunch of dumb mistakes and live in that realm? Why would I do that when I know the future is glory? The same thing applies here. He's saying your future is glorious. Don't piddle around with a bunch of losers right now. Wait patiently for the coming of glory. Live like the person who's gonna be married to the dream because it's yours. Now how do we do that? Like, What's our role? What's our participation? And I'll say this, I think the most helpful thing the scriptures give us to do in order to understand our inheritance is they, for very good reason, have multiple moments in the scriptures where a vision of God in his absolute power and purity are revealed to people in the scriptures. And I think we need to take advantage of those and memorize what they say and set our minds up to, to imagine what heaven is like. The more we find our minds set on the absolute, on the realm of God, the more we set our mind on the reality of who he is and where he dwells and how amazingly glorious and strong he is, the more we will find ourselves resonating with our future inheritance that we have in him to live and dwell in that place. So Ezekiel chapter one, Isaiah chapter six, Revelation chapter four and five. Oh, I mean, Ezekiel one is, maybe, maybe that's one you're less familiar with. A lot of people know the Isaiah six and Revelation four and five. In Ezekiel chapter one, there's this vision that Ezekiel has of the throne room of God. And in it, there are these massively powerful beings with giant wings stretched out across the sky. And they are, they have one head like a man, one like a lion, one like an ox, and one like an eagle. And they move through the sky. It says like flashes of lightning immense in their power. And in spite of how powerful and awe-inspiring these beings are, and it says about them that wherever the Spirit moved, they moved. What a good thing to be able to say about someone. And in spite of their glorious power, Ezekiel looks up and above them, there's a crystal expanse. And above that crystal expanse, it says there's a throne like sapphire. And seated on the throne is one with the appearance of a man, but his upper half was like gleaming metal and his lower half was like fire. And around the throne, there was shining like the light of a rainbow, gloriously uh, exuding from his throne. And Ezekiel says, I saw it. And I was astounded and I fell on my face. If you can picture that place, that's the throne room of God being described for you and I. 
what if we had that picture clear in our mind? What if every time I bowed my head to prayer and I said, the scriptures have told me I can boldly approach the throne of God if I didn't picture some little human throne, but if in my mind I pictured that throne of sapphire above a crystal expanse, or I pictured Isaiah 6 and the train of God's robe filling the temple and angels flying above him declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or if I saw the crystal sea of Revelation 4 and 5 and the hordes of believers bowing down and the 24 elders casting their crowns before him and the four living creatures declaring day and night forever and all time, holy is the Lord. What if I pictured that? And I said to myself, wait, I've been told that's the place that I can approach with boldness. Who am I? Who am I that I would dare approach that kind of a place? Isaiah trembles and falls on his face and says, woe is me. I'm gonna die. I've seen the king. I'm done. And Ezekiel is flat on the ground. I can't, I can't be here. I can't look at this. And because of the blood of Jesus, you and I have been told that same throne is one you and I can walk up to and bow down before without any fear. If we want to be pure, we have to see our inheritance. And the Spirit is telling you that you are an heir because you are a child of the King. It is your inheritance in Christ to come before the throne, to call upon your Father, to ask him for good gifts, to worship and adore him and be received into his presence. But if you have a low view of God, if you can't see that throne room, then your inheritance will mean very little to you. But if you begin to set your eyes on the heavens, you will be astounded and you will grow in purity Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, one who sits at the right hand of the Father, one who intercedes for us along with the Spirit according to the will of God. Oh, how we pray that you would make us pure. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son, for sending the Spirit so that we might become pure. You've told us that without holiness, no one will see you, Father. And we believe that because you've told us. And so we pray, we pray, let your Holy Spirit do its purifying work in us and may nothing in us resist him, not one iota of resistance from us. And may we take up our partnership, our collaboration to work for purity, to join the Spirit's work, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us. Help us, Lord. We know that we can only do it by the Spirit. Only by Him can we put to death the deeds of the body. So we pray, help us. Make it so. Change our appetites. Convict us. We'll receive it. We're listening. We won't resist. 
Come, Holy Spirit, and do this great work of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.